That Chinese balloon discovered over the U.S. has been shot down by U.S. aviators. China says it was just checking out the weather, but U.S. officials don't buy it. We have the latest on what happened and what it means for already tense relations with China. For Saturday, February 4th, it's All Things Considered. I'm Michelle Martin. Also this hour, a brutal cold snap is moving through the northeastern U.S. We ask a weather watcher if it's a sign of things to come. We're the warmest we've been in uh, over two days almost at 24 degrees below zero. Plus, honoring the life of a slain journalist by finishing his reporting and the 10-year journey of an Indian music collective to the Grammys. First, these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The U.S. military has taken down a suspected Chinese spy balloon over the ocean off the coast of South Carolina. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, President Biden said they waited until it was no longer over land. Speaking under the wing of Air Force One, President Biden said the mission to take out the balloon was successful. I ordered the Pentagon to shoot it down on Wednesday as soon as possible. They decided, without doing damage to anyone on, on the ground, they decided that the best time to do that was it got over water outside within our within 12-mile limit. That is within U.S. airspace. In a statement, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said commanders determined that the size of the balloon and its surveillance payload would pose a danger to people on the ground if it were to be shot down over land. He said the operation was deliberate and lawful. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Meanwhile, Republican Senator Tim Scott, echoing many in his party, says the balloon should have been shot down before it crossed to the continental U.S. and that if it's still not clear what information was collected or where it was sent. An American medic was killed in an explosion Thursday in the besieged eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. NPR's Frank Langfitt has more. Pete Reed was evacuating people who remained in the frontline city of Bakhmut which has been the center of fierce fighting between Ukrainian and Russian forces. After one evacuation team came under fire, Reed's team responded, according to his wife, Alex Potter. Quote, he was evacuating civilians and responding to those wounded when his ambulance was shelled, she wrote on Instagram. Reed, a U.S. Marine Corps veteran, had arrived in Ukraine last month as the country director for Global Outreach Doctors, a volunteer group. Reed was well known and admired in the humanitarian aid community. He co-founded a veteran-led medical NGO that delivers emergency care to various front lines and had worked in Iraq, Yemen, and Syria. Frank Langford, NPR News, Kramatorsk. Millions of people could become uninsured this year as a pandemic rule for Medicaid ends. And Pierre Selena Simmons-Duffin has more. During the COVID-19 public health emergency, new people enrolled in Medicaid and no one could be disenrolled. But April 1st, states can start to require people to fill out forms to keep their coverage. The first letters warning people that this process is starting went out this week in a few states, including Arkansas. We have heard that those are being sent out that The patients will start receiving letters to let them know that those renewals will be coming. That's Jennifer Perkins. She helps patients with Medicaid applications at First Choice Healthcare, a clinic in Pocahontas, Arkansas. One federal analysis suggests as many as 15 million people could become uninsured during the Medicaid unwinding process. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. The Arctic blast will make way for warmer weather. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noy says temperatures will rebound by tomorrow afternoon. And she says the forecast for the rest of the winter looks relatively calm. We're going to probably have a few more of these cold snaps, maybe not as intense, but they don't last very long. So I still think there's some chance we squeeze out some snow through the end of the month. We get some colder air, but coming off of a top five warmest January um, for all climate sites across southern New England, this is just kind of extreme stuff in terms of the cold, but we're going right back into that above normal pattern and below normal snowfall pattern here for the next couple of weeks. The brutal cold last night into early this morning led to record low temperatures. Eye-popping wind chills were recorded, 37 below in Boston, 39 below in Franklin, 30 below in Watertown, or just a few. You may want to call ahead if you're flying in or out of Logan Airport. Total flight delays today, 254. Total flight cancellations, 86. One of Boston's largest shelter systems helped 83 people escape the cold, but Pine Street Inn's president and executive director, Lindia Downey, says despite the efforts to convince people to get out of the cold, some chose to stay outside. There's people who stay out who are dealing with substance use disorder. I think there's people who are really struggling with, with serious and persistent mental illness out there. And that's the group we worry about the most because their judgment's impaired. Downey advises people who see someone in distress to call 911. In other news, the head of New Hampshire's Democratic Party says he's not giving up his fight to protect the state's first-in-the-nation presidential primary status after the Democratic National Committee vote today. Local chair Ray Buckley points out that state law requires New Hampshire to hold its primary before any other state. The DNC is replacing Iowa's caucus and New Hampshire's contest with South Carolina's primary going first. The National Party says it wants to empower its base of black and other minority voters. Right now, 13 degrees in Boston at 5.06, up to 25 degrees overnight and near 50 tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. We're going to start with an update on the suspected Chinese spy balloon that the U.S. shot down over the Atlantic Ocean a little after 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. The story has captivated the nation for what may be the first time the public watched a geopolitical scandal unfold in real time. Here to help explain it to us is NPR's Jenna McLaughlin. Jenna, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Michelle. So first of all, how did they take it down? Yeah, so this afternoon, a senior defense official told us that it was an F-22 fighter jet that used an air-to-air missile around 58,000 feet. Their initial assessment is that there was no collateral damage, and now the debris are scattered across about seven nautical miles. So this balloon made a cross-country trip over the U.S. seeing all the sights. Why shoot it down now? Yes. So the Pentagon has told reporters they were aware of this Chinese spy balloon before it crossed into U.S. airspace about a week ago. They've been tracking it closely ever since as it passed over sensitive nuclear sites in Montana and gradually flew southeastward. Biden said today that he commanded the Pentagon to shoot it down. He gave that permission on Wednesday, but he asked to wait until it was safe, as in not over land where debris might fall on civilians. 
The other reason is that they say they believe that China's really not getting that much sensitive intelligence through this balloon, at least not anything vastly more interesting than what they're already getting with their satellites in low orbit. By Saturday afternoon, the balloon was headed for the coastal Carolinas, and the Federal Aviation Administration, who are in charge of flight control and safety, shut down the airspace in that region. Most people pretty quickly figured that meant the U.S. military was going to shoot the balloon down over the water, and the Pentagon quickly confirmed that that was the case. Okay, but they let a Chinese spy balloon fly all the way across the U.S. All right, so what was it doing exactly? What was it capable of? Exactly. So the Chinese government tried to play it off as a wayward weather balloon, but DOD has been really quick to swat that down. In briefings as early as Friday, Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder said that the U.S. government is very confident that it's a spy balloon that's owned and operated by the People's Republic of China, and China can pilot it and did fly it over sensitive military sites. Here's how he described key parts of the balloon on Friday and concerns about when to shoot it down. It is a surveillance balloon. Right. So there is a surveillance capability underneath this large balloon. Right. So look at a blimp. A blimp has a basket. Right. So there's a basket underneath it in layman's terms. So, again, large enough to be concerning uh, if there were a debris field. He also said this isn't the first time that this has happened. The Pentagon has seen several others outside and inside U.S. airspace, including before the Biden administration. So China's done this before. But if they've done this before, why has it been such a public saga this week? What's different this time? So for one, I think that in the digital age, it was so easy for people to spot the balloon and share updates in real time on social media. People have also been using open source flight trackers, and they really quickly spotted several military jets flying around Myrtle Beach around the same time that the FAA issued the ground stop. I also think that the other reason this time is different is because there's a lot of tension between China and the U.S. right now. China might not necessarily get a lot of intelligence from this mission, but it sends a clear message, particularly ahead of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's planned diplomatic travel to China, which ultimately got postponed as a result of this snafu. So the balloon's been shot down. What now? Now, the Pentagon's got to clean up. They've got a naval recovery mission on their hands. Officials at the Pentagon told reporters this afternoon that they're not sure how long it will take, but there are several Navy and Coast Guard vessels in the area to take care of it. The debris is scattered across seven nautical miles in water that gets up to about 47 feet deep. But the U.S. military officials that we spoke with were actually pretty optimistic because now they can collect the Chinese technology and study it. So what was designed to give China a huge surveillance boost might actually help the U.S. learn about what a U.S. military official described as a fleet of Chinese surveillance balloons that have been spotted across five different continents. That was NPR's Jenna McLaughlin. Jenna, thank you. Thank you. So we're going to turn now to our China affairs correspondent, John Ruwich, to talk through some of the implications of this balloon incident for U.S.-China relations. John, thanks for joining us. Sure thing. So balloons don't usually cause diplomatic incidents, but this balloon appeared over the U.S. just as Jenna just told us. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was scheduled to depart on a two-day trip to Beijing. China's decision to fly a surveillance balloon over the continental United States is both unacceptable and irresponsible. That's what this is about. It's a violation of our sovereignty. It's a violation of international law. And as we've heard, that trip is now postponed indefinitely, and today's shootdown of the balloon throws relations into even more uncertainty. So, John, this incident came at a pivotal time in China-U.S. relations, right? So talk a little bit about why that is and how the Chinese have responded. 
Yes, the the Blinken trip, uh, the would be trip to China would have been his first or the first by Secretary of State in years. Relations between China and the U.S., of course, are in really bad shape. But in recent months, we've seen both sides really showing sort of an increased willingness to dial down their rhetoric and get back to to talking. Um, this shootdown happened at about 3.45 in the morning Beijing time. Uh, it's possible the U.S. gave China a heads up, but the government doesn't always react super quickly to stuff uh, on the weekends and at nights. So far, there's no reaction. China's response to this whole episode, though, has actually been fairly restrained. You know, China admitted that the balloon was theirs. They called it a civilian airship for scientific research and that it was blown off course. They've also done something quite rare, which is express regret over it. And on Saturday, it was interesting in response to uh, Blinken's trip postponement, that it didn't, Beijing didn't even acknowledge that Blinken had been planning to go to Beijing. Uh, so as you say, it's a pivotal time, and that probably has something to do with the way that China's responding. Well, well say more about that, if you would. They've expressed sure. regret because it's a critical time. Help us understand that. Well, in November, uh, President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping met in Bali, and they agreed to more talks between officials uh, between the two countries to try to cool things off, stop things from getting worse in the relationship. And this Blinken visit was meant to carry forward momentum. It's something that both sides want. But now it's off, at least temporarily. And Susan Shirk, a veteran China watcher at the University of California, San Diego, says that reflects a deeper problem. It's evidence of just how brittle U.S.-China relations are right now. I mean, stuff happens. And if the relationship has no resilience, if the communication has not been well established between the two sides, it'll just throw things off track. So, so, John, if both sides want to improve relations, can you just kind of help us understand why the U.S. reacted this way? The Pentagon telling us that this isn't even the first time it has encountered one of these Chinese balloons. Right. And the Pentagon said it wasn't a threat, right? But this has been hugely symbolic. It's a violation of U.S. airspace and sovereignty. And as Jenna was saying a few minutes ago, the thing was visible with the naked eye. So it snowballed into a political issue, really. There was a chorus of U.S. lawmakers that piped up over it. And, and the Biden administration really had to react. Uh, Blinken, for his part, you know, has said that he's still committed to managing the relationship with Beijing responsibly and that he'd be prepared to go to Beijing uh, quote, as soon as conditions allow. The challenge is really going to be rescheduling this meeting. Um, it probably won't happen until they recover and assess the balloon debris. In about a month, China's parliament, the so-called two sessions meets. Also, there's increasing talk of a possible Taiwan visit by Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, possibly in the spring, which will stoke tensions. I talked to Yun Sun about this. She's a senior fellow at the Stimson Center in Washington. This postponement is going to have an expiration date. If it doesn't happen before the two sessions in China, and if it doesn't happen before Speaker of the House McCarthy's trip to Taiwan, it may not happen at all. The Chinese might feel that, well, we missed the opportunity. Yeah, this, this balloon thing uh, has really complicated the situation. So what's the best case outcome now for U.S.-China relations? Well, in the short term, I think the best case is that they reschedule the meeting soon and they have some productive talks. I mean, the bar is very low. Nobody was expecting big breakthroughs from this meeting. Longer term, the outlook for China-U.S. relations isn't so great. The U.S. has a long list of grievances against China, and the Chinese government, of course, doesn't think that Washington is all that sincere about wanting to stabilize relations. They think the U.S. Uh, says one thing and then goes off and keeps doing things to hurt China's interests, like choking it off uh, from the global supply of microchips, adding more military bases in China's periphery, trying to convince friends and allies around the world to also see China as a strategic competitor, if not an outright threat. 
you know, it's worth noting that this week, President Biden will uh, deliver his State of the Union address, and he will no doubt refer to China in those terms. I mean, for his part, on the other side, you know, analysts think that Xi Jinping probably hasn't changed his stripes. You know, even though Beijing's been on this charm offensive for a while, um, he's still he's still the same leader that he was. So the path ahead isn't easy. And if they're not even meeting and talking, it's hard to see how things get much better. That is NPR's John Ruich. John, thank you. You're welcome, Michelle. And we will continue to take a close look tomorrow at U.S.-China relations when we speak with Senator Michael Bennett about why he thinks TikTok, which is owned by a Chinese company, should be removed from Apple's and Google's app stores. That is tomorrow on All Things Considered. Spanish fashion designer Paco Rabanne has died at 88 years old, that according to his fashion house. As NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports, he was known for his fragrances and space-age designs. In the campy 1968 sci-fi movie Barbarella, actress Jane Fonda explores another planet wearing groovy knee-high boots and sexy futuristic metallic outfits. Barbarella, Barbarella. Paco Rabanne designed her costume using plastic, chainmail, metal, and leather. The designs were hip in 1960s pop culture and continue to be today. The self-taught designer was born Francisco Rabaneda Cuervo in the Basque region of Spain in 1934. His father had been a soldier in the Republic, his mother a couture seamstress for designer Cristobal Balenciaga. Rabanne studied architecture in France before designing avant-garde clothes and perfumes. He entered the fashion scene in the early 1960s with a collection of experimental dresses made of plastic discs and metal rings that he said were unwearable. His designs quickly became popular with stars and models such as Bridget Bardot and Twiggy. Filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard and John Huston called on him to costume their films, too. Raban retired in 1999, but his label was later revived. In a statement, the president of his fashion and fragrance house honored Raban's unique aesthetic and, quote, daring, revolutionary, and provocative vision of the world of fashion. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, the American Obsession with Being Self-Made, it's within the context of George Santos's political career. Also, the legacy of R&B great Luther Vandross. And at 7 on the TED Radio Hour, the mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gore Place and Saturday Family Time, hands-on educational activities for kids and families. Explore with your family Saturdays in Waltham. Goreplace.org. Check back for the news with WBUR again tonight. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app. We are always there when you need us. WBUR supporters include Bernadine Sung Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden says the U.S. has downed a suspected Chinese spy balloon off the coast of the Carolinas. The Pentagon tracked the balloon as it traveled over Alaska and Montana, where the U.S. has sensitive military sites. The Chinese claim it was a weather balloon, but the Pentagon disagreed. Republicans say the balloon should have been shot down before it crossed over the U.S. On the last full 
day of his three-day Africa trip, Pope Francis met with displaced South Sudanese who've dealt with the conflict in the area and are now living in sprawling camps for displaced people. In Chile is in the midst of a heat wave complicating efforts to bring dozens of wildfires under control. At least 22 people have died from fire-related causes. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Over the past 24 hours, a dangerously cold storm has pushed temperatures well below zero across New England. Weather service officials warned that these dangerously cold temperatures can cause frostbite on any exposed skin in as little as 10 minutes. And here's what that storm sounded like outside the Mount Washington Weather Observatory in New Hampshire's White Mountains. That wind you're hearing whipped across the summit of Mount Washington, which is the highest peak in the northeastern U.S., at 120 miles per hour. Wind chill temperatures were measured at below minus 100 degrees Fahrenheit. According to NASA, that's about the same temperature as the surface of Mars. And inside the observatory overnight, and still there now, is meteorologist Francis Terrazowitz. He is a weather observer and education specialist with the Mount Washington Observatory. He's here to explain why this storm is so severe and what is causing this strange phenomena. Francis Terrazowitz, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. So what are the conditions like outside and what was it like over the past 24 hours? Sure. So outside right now, we've finally uh, broken out of the clouds. We were in a lot of fog. Um, and interestingly enough, we've been watching these little snow whirls, little snow tornadoes, if you will, coming up the side of the summit with strong winds. We're still in the 70 or so mile per hour range with gusts around 90 miles per hour. And we're the warmest we've been in uh, over two days almost at 24 degrees below zero. So I, I, I would assume that Mount Washington in particular is no stranger to extreme conditions. But how does this compare with other cold snaps? So actually, this particular cold snap up here on the summit tied the record lowest temperature that we've recorded as an organization at this particular station, 47 degrees below zero. We hit that um, number right around 4 a.m. this morning. Oh, my goodness. So... So what's causing these incredibly cold temperatures in New England and where you are at Mount Washington? So there has been a, a lobe of the polar vortex, which usually sits uh, right on the northern, uh, right on the North Pole, I should say. Um, that's come down from northern Canada and uh, paid us a visit here, up here in New England, and particularly in the northern part of New England. That's really what allowed for a really quick-hitting but intense period of cold. Do you think that we are going to see more of these kinds of storms? in the future? Difficult to say exactly, but there are some studies that suggest a a wavier jet stream that is able to dislodge these areas of polar air southward into the mid-latitudes, maybe contributing to future events like this, particularly as the planet warms and that temperature gradient from north to south lessens. um, That will allow for the jet stream to perhaps become a bit more wavy 
and again, bring some of these chunks of really cold Arctic air southward. On the one hand, it's fascinating, right? On the other hand, it's kind of frightening because it's, it can be dangerous. These cold temperatures, I mean, human beings really aren't built for this. Am, am I right? And that's absolutely right. So even right now, you know, the warmest we've been in 24 hours, if I were to, say, leave my glove off uh, for more than a couple of minutes, I may start to feel the beginnings of frostbite. Uh, and yesterday, frostbite could have set in as little as uh, 30 seconds or so, uh, just with the you know, 100 degree below wind chills. And so definitely a quite dangerous storm up here and in the New England area overall. So I think the message here is don't be out there. I think that's kind of a, I think the bottom line is don't be out there. But I, which is, I assume, one of the reasons school was closed is that people don't want children, you know, standing at bus stops and things of that sort. Definitely. I think that was the right call for many areas. Um, with many areas around the Northeast breaking record low temperatures during the month of February, that's a fairly impressive feat uh, in New England. That was Francis Terazowit. He's a weather observer and education specialist with the Mount Washington Observatory. Francis Terazowit, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks for your time. In Portland, Maine, wind chills of more than 40 degrees below zero have prompted social service workers to try to convince people without safe, stable housing to head to warming centers. But often people don't want to leave their makeshift shelters behind out of fear that someone will take their things while they're gone. Teams like the one at Milestone Recovery try to help. Carol Bousquet from Maine Public Radio went along. The team from the nonprofit social service agency Milestone Recovery travels the well-trodden path through the snow into the woods to bring propane food, medicine, and water to Hazen Shaw. Shaw, whose friends call him Jack, says he's been unhoused off and on for 10 years and built his crudely constructed shelter last year out of what he calls fines. The wind has pretty much ripped up a lot of my tarp, so I uh, dragged back some plywood that I found over towards the interstate and put on the sides and insulated it a little bit. Jack doesn't plan to leave to go to the temporary shelter, and the propane milestone brings him allows him to run his heater and a one-burner grill that he says keeps his shelter at about 60 to 65 degrees inside. He says he thinks he can withstand the brutal cold with help from Milestone, but he knows not everyone out here can. If it wasn't for them bringing us water and food and stuff, there's no way. They'd be finding people out here frozen. Some people just can't survive that. You know, they can't survive this cold like this. And they don't know what to do. They freeze up. They forget how to build a fire, even. You must worry about them. We do. We worry about them often. But that's why we are out here with food, water, and make sure that they have heat so they're safe. Milestone's Courtney Bass says a temporary shelter in the city is not what Jack and other unhoused residents out here need. What they need, she says, are permanent solutions and an understanding that their situation is not always their first choice. You know, respect the fact that they have to camp right now, that there is no other options, and they're just people trying to survive like everybody else. For NPR News, I'm Carol Bousquet in Portland, Maine. Attacks on journalists have become all too common, even in the U.S., where freedom of the press is enshrined in the Constitution. And while it's easy to understand that these attacks are meant to intimidate people from looking into certain subjects, in the aftermath, we might not think about the important work left unfinished. So we're going to tell you about a recent effort to make sure that didn't happen. Last September, Las Vegas investigative reporter Jeff German was killed outside his home. A local official in Clark County, Nevada, whom he had investigated, is charged in his death. 
At the time, German was working on an unrelated story about an alleged Ponzi scheme that victimized more than 900 people over a five-year period, mostly members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who, according to the SEC complaint, are believed to have lost somewhere around $500 million. To continue German's work, the Washington Post teamed up with his newspaper, the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Post reporter Lizzie Johnson published her report on Wednesday, and she's with us now to tell us more about it. Lizzie Johnson, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So collaborations are becoming more common. People might have heard about that big multinational Pandora project, but they aren't that common. And you don't necessarily think of the Post as a natural fit with a regional news outlet like the Las Vegas Review-Journal. So how did the partnership happen? Well, right after we had heard about Jeff's death, the Post wanted to do something to help, right? This was someone who did the same work that we do in a story should never have to die just because the reporter can't finish it. So my editors had reached out to the Las Vegas Review Journal asking if there was something we could do. And Jeff's editor was like, you know, actually there was this story idea he had. What if you took it on? And there was no question. It was an immediate yes that that was the best thing we could do to help preserve his legacy and continue his work. There have been a number of Ponzi frauds over the years that I think people know about. I'm thinking most notably like the Bernie Madoff scandal. This case has become known as the quote-unquote Mormon Ponzi scheme. Why do they call it that? And tell us a little bit more about what the scheme was. So the scheme allegedly was the principals were selling these personal injury settlements, basically saying, you know, we are going to loan some money to someone who has slipped and fallen, and in 90 days they'll pay us back. And if you keep your money invested with us, that will mean you'll get an annualized return of 50%. And so that was really enticing to a lot of people. It's a really good return. And it started working its way through the Mormon church. A few of the principals and the marketers were Mormon. And so they allegedly told their friends and family about it. And it spread from there. You had people who were investing their retirement accounts, who were getting a second mortgage on their house, who were putting all of their savings into this because it seemed like such a good deal. This is really common in what they call an affinity fraud. Basically, your sense of trust is so high because these are people that you see every Sunday at church. They belong to your ward. You see them at the grocery store. Your children grow up together. And, you know, you just don't expect that someone that you trust is going to defraud you. There was one victim that I talked with who described it as, you know, the red flags were heart-shaped. So even though the warning signs were there, She trusted the person who had told her about it and didn't expect this outcome. So there was no underlying product of value that they were investing in. I guess that they would pay people with money that they got from other people. Like that's how it worked. Correct. And that's a hallmark of a classic Ponzi scheme, right, is that these dividends arrive on time. They're the correct amount. You never miss one. And that inspires confidence. But that money isn't real money per se. It is just the funds from new investors that are paying the quote-unquote dividends of older investors. One of the alleged founders of the scheme is in jail at the moment, but he's the only one who's been charged. Is that right? Yeah. So the Securities and Exchange Commission filed a complaint last April against the principals and a bunch of lower-level marketers. And so that is working its way through the courts right now. Criminal charges have not been filed yet. And the only reason why that principal that you mentioned, attorney Matthew Beasley, the reason why that he is in that private detention center in Nevada right now is because he has another charge for assault against a federal officer. 
the FBI had gone to his house last year to ask him some questions and execute a search warrant. And when they got to his front door, he was waiting there with a gun. That is why he is in imprisoned right now for those charges. And I don't know if you really had time to think about this while you were, you know, following Jeff's lead and trying to finish his work. But is there any way you can kind of describe the, if you feel comfortable doing so, the effect on his colleagues of, of what it meant to them to have you finish his reporting? You know, he was so passionate about his work and everyone told me about how he treated his colleagues like family and had been covering Las Vegas for decades and really gave everything to the community. So felt a lot of pressure to do this right. It was after publication that one of his colleagues reached out to me and was like, you know, Jeff would be really proud. And that's when I knew that I had done the job well and had upheld his honor. So that really means the world. But why is it that they needed um, someone to come in to do the work? Is it that they just didn't have the staffing to, to fulfill all their other responsibilities as well as to do this work? Or they didn't have this, or he was basically the only person they felt who could do that work at that, at that level. I guess I'm just sort of wondering why they needed to bring in someone from another news outlet. They just didn't have the capacity to do it or was it just too painful? Look, I can't, I can't speak for his editors for why they made that decision exactly. But my perception is that, you know, this is a, a local newspaper and staffing was stretched thin and that they were really devastated by the death of Jeff, by his murder, and were focusing a lot of resources on covering what had happened and covering the ongoing case, along with the legal issues of, you know, Jeff's computer and cell phone and all of his notes and figuring that out in the courts over who gets control of that. I think they're, when they saw that the Post had reached out for help, again, this is just my perception, but I think they saw it as, okay, here are some resources we could use to continue Jeff's legacy and tell this story that we just don't have the manpower to do right now. I think this is probably unusual for you. Am I right? I mean, you've never, you know, picked up a story that another reporter was unable to finish for whatever reason. What, what Do you mind if I ask, like, what was that like for you? There was a lot of pressure to be tasked with finishing this work that someone couldn't complete because they had been killed, right? Like, that's a lot. So I just really tried to stay focused on the work and think a lot about what Jeff would have done and hope that in the end he would be proud of the story and that he would be, you know, enthralled by all the twists and turns along the way. Lizzie Johnson is a reporter for The Washington Post. Her piece, where she completed the work started by Jeff German, is titled Alleged $500 Million Ponzi Scheme Preyed on Mormons. It Ended with FBI Gunfire. It is available online now, and it will be published in both the Las Vegas Review-Journal and the Washington Post on Sunday. Lizzie Johnson, thanks so much for sharing this reporting with us. Thanks for caring. You're listening to NPR News. 
We've been telling you how during the current cold snap in certain parts of the country, it can be dangerous to spend a lot of time outdoors. So we would never suggest heading out to exercise right now if you're in one of those places. But when we are not in a once in a generation storm, there are ways to exercise outdoors in the cold. Of course, you need to make sure you're covered up and protected from the elements. For Life Kit, NPR's Wynn Davis has more. When winter comes around, I really struggle with getting outside to get my runs in. But that's definitely not the case for everyone. Unpopular opinion, I love running in the cold. It is my absolute favorite time of year. That's Allison Mariella Desir. She's a mother, an athlete, an activist, and the author of the book Running While Black. Her philosophy comes down to the fact that when you start moving, you're going to warm up. Because when you're moving 50 degrees it will feel like 70 degrees by the time you get moving. Let's start out with the basics of what you might need for, say, a 50-degree day, which to some, you know, might not be all that cold. So the air is crisp, but the sun is peeking out. You, I would wear, and bear with me now, I would wear shorts, uh, a short uh, short sleeve shirt that is a wicking material, and then a long sleeve shirt over that. And I would start out very cold. But very quickly, that long sleeve shirt would come off and I would tie it around my waist and I would be sweating. The most important thing here is that the layer closest to your skin is a moisture wicking material. That's going to help keep you dry and your body temperature where it needs to be. Look for a synthetic fiber here like polyester or nylon or a wool blend. And avoid cotton because it will get wet and stay wet. Now let's say it's around freezing temperatures. You want to add more layers here. I would wear fleece line tights, a wicking short sleeve shirt. Then I would wear a long sleeve shirt over that, and I would definitely wear a jacket, a running jacket. A hat, headband, and gloves come in handy too. Now if it's really cold out, I'm talking like 30 or below, you should think about adding protection for your face, like a neck gaiter. You also want to make sure you have a good pair of wool socks to keep your feet warm and dry. All of these layers that you're building are going to help protect you from conditions like frostbite and hypothermia. Frostbite is an injury to the body that's caused by freezing. And what happens is when it's cold, your blood flow gets concentrated in your body's core and it leaves other areas like your hands, your feet, your head, your ears, and that becomes vulnerable to frostbite. That's Dr. Kalechea Korha of the Mayo Clinic. Cold skin and a prickling feeling are the beginning symptoms of frostbite. When it starts to get worse, you might see discoloration of the skin or feel some numbness. Now, when it comes to hypothermia, that's when you have an abnormally low body temperature. So when you're exposed to cold temperatures, your body begins to lose heat faster than it can be produced. And so exercising in cold or rainy weather can increase your risk of hyperthermia. Some signs and symptoms of hyperthermia are things like intense shivering, slurred speech, loss of coordination, or even fatigue. If you recognize signs of either of these, you need to get inside as soon as possible and warm up slowly. The good news is, though, that dressing appropriately can help prevent both of these from happening. And maybe you'll end up loving the cold as much as Desir does. I just love it. I love the cool air on my face. I love the feeling of being one of the only people out there. I love the clothing. I love layers. Literally everything. For NPR News, I'm Wynn Davis. Life Kit has more tips and tricks to keep you moving this winter. Check them out at npr.org slash lifekit. This is NPR News.
on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, the American obsession of being self-made and the political career of George Santos. Coming to City Space on Monday, February 6th, James Beard award-winning celebrity chef Ming Tsai on his career journey and love of East-West cooking. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. Well, the temperatures continue to rise. It'll be up to 25 degrees overnight, 45 degrees in Boston tomorrow. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says it'll be ideal weather for skiing tomorrow in northern New England. The mountains will be in the 30s tomorrow, which is actually kind of balmy for winter, um, and in the 40s and 30s for much of next week. So still some great, great skiing to be had. Right now it's 13 degrees at 539. Sending Winston flowers from WBUR is an act of love that supports your commitment to learning and growing. Save 10% at WBUR.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The Democratic National Committee overwhelmingly voted to reshuffle the party's 2024 presidential primary calendar. The new order replaces Iowa with South Carolina in the leadoff spot, a move that empowers states with more diverse electorates. An evacuation order is in place in East Palestine, Ohio, after 50 rail cars derailed overnight. Officials say one chemical burning is vinyl chloride, a known carcinogen. The EPA says safety features on the burning car appear to be working and that it found no health risks to the air or water so far. And a cold wave hitting New England has sent temperatures and wind chills plunging to record lows. Mount Washington in New Hampshire set a record cold wind chill at 108 degrees below zero. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Over the course of his many years hosting history and genealogy shows on PBS, scholar and filmmaker Henry Louis Gates Jr. has guided dozens of people through emotional deep dives into their family histories, unearthed with the help of DNA and a team of expert researchers. Many of those profiled have said that the discoveries changed their view of themselves forever. But an episode in his latest series, Finding Your Roots, now in its ninth season, may have produced one of the most profound self-image all surprises yet. Joe's DNA does not match him with anyone related to Emilio Manganello, the man whom he always assumed to be his father's father. I called Joe before our interview to let him convey the news to his father in private and see if he wanted to withdraw from the series. As shocking as this information was to us, I discovered that Joe's father was not entirely surprised. And Henry Louis Gates Jr. is with us now to tell us more. Professor Gates, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Oh, thanks for having me on the program. I love your show. Well, thank you for that. 
So this week's episode features former pro football player Tony Gonzalez and actor Joe Manganiello. And it turns out that Joe on his mother's side had a mystery that he'd been struggling with, that he'd been looking for some help with. What was that? Yes. Well, it's a fascinating story. Um, Joe's maternal great-grandmother's name was Rose de Rotjohn, and she was a survivor of the Armenian genocide. And Rose ended up in a refugee camp where she ultimately met a German soldier with whom she had a, a daughter. Now, we know nothing about the nature of the relationship between Rose and this German soldier who fathered Joe's grandmother, Sandra. This German soldier is Joe's great-grandfather, and Joe came to us hoping to learn his identity. His name was Carl Wilhelm Beidinger. In the process of solving this mystery, man, we uncovered a much bigger mystery. In the past, you have had to let people know that there were things in their family histories that they might not be proud of, like the fact that they are descended from enslavers. That's that right. The source of their family wealth might be enslavement. Now, you've had a number of situations like that, and some of the guests, subjects, were not happy about that. And mm -hmm. But this week's episode has a different spin on that arc. You found out that Joe's paternal grandfather is not who he thinks he is or was. And I'm just gonna play that clip, here it is. Joe, these are some of the documents we gathered for the three Cutler brothers. Now, would you please read what they all say about the three men's race? Okay, um, Negro, mm -hmm. white, mm -hmm. Negro, mm -hmm. white, mm -hmm. of African descent, white. Joe, it seemed to us that the Cutlers may have been light-skinned African-American men. Well, that's interesting. That means that you would, under the one drop rule, be an African-American. Boy, now that, that's, uh, that's really interesting. It is really interesting. So, Professor Gates, is this the first time that this has happened, that somebody's racial identity is not what they think it is? One of the first times. We, I think the first time was with Ty Burrell. And Ty Burrell learned that his great-great-grandmother was a black woman. Ty Burrell being, and I think many people would know him from Modern Family. Yes. Yeah, so there it is. <laughs> and, and Carly Simon. Carly's mother was 20% black. Carly was 10% black. And Carly's uh, grandmother, therefore, was 40% black. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I mean, the reason I bring this up is that I think I'm, I think I'm on firm ground here when I say that I think a lot of African-Americans throughout history have speculated about who might have African ancestry. And you can understand why, look, given the racial history of this country, it probably shouldn't be surprising That's how right. many people do. But, but, but has learning something like this, how, does, how do you think it changes your view of yourself? Well, in Joe's case, he's just so proud of his African-American ancestors, and I'll, I'll explain why. Joe's DNA revealed that he was 7% Sub-Saharan African. That is roughly the equivalent of having one great-great-grandparent of full African descent. But it turns out when we then trace his black ancestry back, we ended up with an amazing ancestor who is his fifth great-grandfather. His name is Plato Turner. Plato Turner was likely born in Africa in the 1740s, and he's well known because he performed heroically as a patriot in the American Revolution. Mm. <laughs> he, and there is yeah, a monument to remarkable. him. In, There's yeah, a monument to him? Where? A monument to him in Plymouth, 
a monument. Plymouth, Massachusetts. In Plymouth, Massachusetts. And so Joe is all over this ancestor. I mean, he, he would love to be made a member of the Sons of the American Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Good for him. So, but has anybody, look, I'm not going to ask you who, but has anybody ever dropped out because of a revelation like this? Well, no one so far has ever said no, but according to the ethicist, that's what I have to ask. So everybody so far has said yes. Then I have to say, in Joe's case, um, your grandmother, obviously, according to your DNA, had an affair with a black man, and he, it, that black man is your father's father. And then I have to do that privately because it's not the Jerry Springer show. You know, my job is not to embarrass anybody or cause somebody having a heart attack. His father couldn't exactly learn this sitting in his living room with his friends, right? Watching Finding right. a Roots. Agreed, agreed. And so, because it, there are psychological implications. It's very traumatic for people. And so then I said to him. No matter what it is, not just the racial aspect of it, but just the knowledge that the relationships were not necessarily what you thought they were. Right. right. After right. all these years. I want to go back to what one of the things that you said to, to Joe when you were, were walking through this information with him is that is that you said, look, under the one drop rule, you would be African-American. You are. We are speaking in a moment where there's just so much um, heat around American history and the way it is taught. What I'm asking you is what difference do you think it might make to our dialogue around some of these issues if oh. people were more acquainted with the realities? I believe that the, and I think about this a lot, the popularity of Finding Your Roots is the fact that it reminds us every week that we're, we are a nation of immigrants and that immigration um, is part of the country's DNA. But the second is that the DNA results show that there is no such thing as racial purity. That no matter what the law was in the daytime, when nighttime came, people were violating those rules against intermixing and falling in love and having relationships across what we used to call the color line. Why do you think that there is such, so, there's so much um, animosity around the teaching of, of history then? Why do you think that is? Well, I think that, um, you, you know, the metaphor that is commonly used is that slavery is America's original sin and that there are a lot of people who just don't want to admit that the wealth of the United States was built on the free labor of people of, of African descent. And those African-American ancestors were not only exploited economically through their labor, there was a great deal of sexual exploitation as well. The average African-American is 24% European or 24% white. That is through the, the results of the commercial DNA company. So we have to be secure enough to say, yes, this was our original sin. Yes, the wealth of our country was built on the backs of en enslaved people whose labor was stolen from them. But teaching that is not intended to make anybody feel bad. And in fact, I have been teaching since I was 26 years old. I'm 72. I've never heard of a professor in any African-American history class who's tried to embarrass a white student over the fact of slavery. We're just teaching it because it's a fact. And we can only deal with it by being honest about the facts. A new episode of Finding Your Roots comes out on Tuesday, February 7th. Henry Louis Gates Jr., thank you so much for talking to us about this today. Oh, thank you. It was a wonderful interview. I'll be on your show anytime. 
And finally today, when Annette Phillip arrived at Berklee College of Music in Boston 10 years ago, she realized the rich sounds she played in India were all but missing. She changed that by starting a massive collaboration with other artists that's taken on a life of its own. Now the Berklee Indian Ensemble's first album is up for a Grammy. Andrea Shea of member station WBUR has more on the journey behind this debut. Annette Phillip remembers how surprised she was that even at a prestigious international school like Berkeley, she couldn't find her homeland's music. There were these little pockets where Indian music was being explored, but more from a theoretical side or just rhythms. After graduating, Philip became the school's first Indian musician on faculty, and she was given a blank canvas to create something new. It was a no-brainer for me. I, I said, well, we need to have a performing collective that, you know, is really exploring Indian music and folk music and Sufi traditions and Indo-jazz music and Bollywood and contemporary and maybe originals in the future, you know, why not? Since 2010, about 500 students from 52 countries have composed, rearranged, performed, and recorded an array of Indian music. Philip also invited luminaries to collaborate, including famed film composer A.R. Raymond. One of the songs we chose was a classic hit of Mr. Rehman's called Jia Jale. It's from the movie Bill Singh. took off for the ensemble after Berkeley posted a video of this recording session on YouTube. It just suddenly overnight went viral and I think within a week it had hit its first million. Now, Philip says 46% of Berkeley's YouTube subscribers live in India. This proof of audience fueled momentum for touring and an album. Over the years, the evolving army of students and alumni has recorded collaborations with other Indian stars, like Grammy-winning tabla master Zakir Hussain. The ensemble created a new version of his group's song, Lady L, and performed it with him. When he came in, our ensemble members from Israel, Iran, Brazil, India, Poland, Australia, and Norway, they came up with this fantastic new arrangement. Then there's the Tamil film song Sundari Pene, where Philip says the ensemble took a grunge-inspired approach. It has a fusion of progressive rock, cornacol, jazz reharmonizations, and of course, semi-classical Indian music. Vocalist Rohith Jayaraman performed this conical, which is a traditional Indian recitation style, with an experimental twist. We put it through a megaphone and it just sounds really crunchy and 
This is not a great expensive megaphone that we have either, so it's already like extra crackly on its own, which gives it more character. Jaya Raman says the students were starstruck to collaborate on this song with Bollywood celebrity vocalist Shreya Goshal during her residency. whole diaspora, Indian diaspora, really like watched and heard her grow up with us. And she walked in and there was obviously all of us had that little moment of like, she's in a room with us. There's one student who's a huge fan of hers and she was really like, I mean, I think it took all her willpower to sort of keep it together. Jaya Raman's parents came to the U.S. in the late 80s, and he says he grew up in a very Indian household in California. He remembers how, as a freshman at Berkeley, he really missed home. One day, Jaya Raman walked by a classroom, heard familiar rhythms, and sat down on the floor outside the door. I hadn't heard Indian music since I got to Berkeley, and I just remember I was just sitting there, I was just crying. When Annette Phillip discovered Jaya Raman, She said, well, if you're free on Tuesdays, why don't you come by between four and six? I went by and then basically haven't missed a rehearsal since. <laughs> Jaya Raman works as a director with the ensemble. He's honored their first album, Shuru Rat, which is Hindi for beginning, is finally out in the world and up for a Grammy. Yeah, it's kind of unreal. Time to get our outfits in order. <laughs> Annette Phillip is also excited about the nomination, but she says she's especially proud that during production, the group designed an equitable revenue system for all the performers. We signed 98 contracts, and I think it's just important that this becomes the norm in the industry. Philip hopes this inclusive collaboration proves people from all over the world can work together. As Jaya Raman likes to say, It's like global music with an Indian accent. This not-so-little group from Boston that started in a classroom will find out if its debut wins the Grammy for Best Global Music Album tomorrow. For NPR News, I'm Andrea Shea.